That, that was amazing. Well done. Um, that's pretty bold that you guys do that. I love it. I'm like, when I, when I told my staff that I was coming here to speak, they're like, hey, take some notes on some things that they do. That's absolutely making it in my, my notebook. Man, Eastside, how you guys doing tonight? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I can't speak about the 9.30 and 11 o'clock service on Sunday morning, but you all rock. I mean, like, if this is Eastside Christian Church, I am looking forward to the next few days. It is good to be with you. I really appreciate Dave inviting me to be a part of, of this weekend. Um, like was said, my name is Sean. Uh, I am the lead minister of Sherwood Oaks Christian Church in Bloomington, home of Indiana University. My people, yes. Uh, this is a picture of our fam uh, going to an IU women's basketball game. Uh, we, we love going to just a, any game, but we were especially over the last couple of seasons been drawn to the women's team. Uh, we are now season ticket holders for IU women's basketball. Uh, just really enjoy that program. Uh, and, and now I kind of want to know who I'm with here uh, th this evening. And, and so I, I know that there is at least one um, Michigan State fan in the house because I brought them with me from Bloomington. Uh, but, but let's scratch that. I, I, we're, we're near Louisville. Who are my U of L fans here? Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah, you guys are pretty harmless. We're not too worried about you. Uh, now, I also know that we are, we are down in, in the part of the world where there are some poor, unfortunate people who suffer from this condition where if you cut them, they bleed blue. The UK fans, it's okay, Jesus loves you too. And we love you because Jesus tells us to love you. <laughs> So I was born and raised in Indiana, uh, grew up in a small town 25 miles north of Indy called Cicero, uh, graduated from Hamilton Heights High School in 1998. So I am a Hoosier through and through, proud Hoosier. But God has a little bit of a sense of humor if you don't know it. And so in 2004, he called my wife and I to go and serve at a church in Kentucky. And we spent nine long, painful years trying to be missionaries to uh, that state. We loved our time actually in Kentucky, our time at, at Owensboro Christian Church, just a, a couple hours west of here over on the other side of the river. And in about 2013, I, I started feeling like God was, was, was shifting his call in my life, that I was starting to find some new passions and, and I wanted to explore some new maybe opportunities for how he wanted to, to use me. And I started him feeling, feeling the Lord just kind of stirring something inside. And so uh, he gave me this greater burden for preaching and for leading in the church. I talked to my elders about it and they said, yeah, hey, with our blessing, go out. And, and anything that we can do uh, to help encourage your next step in ministry, we want, we want to, to do that. And so as we were looking, what we were really hoping is that, that as we were exploring what the Lord might be up to, that, that the thing that he was going to be up to was moving us back into Indiana, back honestly to Bloomington. I mean, we had ties in Bloomington. We love that community. We really uh, wanted to be able to, to, to serve there. My wife's parents lived there. We love the college town vibe, all of the outdoorsy stuff. But instead of moving us north, he moved us East, and we got connected with a church planting ministry in New England called Restoration House Ministries. 
They were looking for a lead minister at an existing church plant in Rhode Island. Yeah, Rhode Island typically doesn't get a lot of shout outs. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. Don't know why. But they were, this church plant was, was just a couple of years old. Uh, but they had already gone through just a really difficult season in their young history. They had already experienced a church split. Their entire plant team had turned over. And so there was a lot of pain. There was a lot of hurt, a lot of confusion. And, and Restoration House was looking for someone crazy enough to step in and serve in that location. And we were those people. <laughs> And so after some time of, of meeting with people within the church, learning more about the spiritual landscape of New England, my wife and I, we, we felt drawn to this, this area. And, and, and I'm one that, that believes that God has kind of this general will for our life that, you know, he's, he's told us everything that we need to know in scripture of what to do and how to serve him, how to live for him. And I think most of the times he just kind of was like, now just go and do it. And, and however you are doing it, man, if you're bringing my kingdom where you are, like you're not going to mess up my will. <laughs> but I think there are sometimes we see it in scripture and sometimes we experience it in our life where there seems like there is a very specific call that God is saying through a burden, through his word, through other people around us in our life saying, no, this is where I'm sending you. And my wife and I felt that type of calling to Rhode Island. And we knew that it was going to be really hard, but we were trusting that the Lord was going to, to lead the way. Uh, we, we didn't really know anybody. Our girls were young. In fact, our youngest hadn't even turned a year old yet. We, we were leaving our support system behind. We were leaving our family behind. And on top of that, my parents had just recently gotten a divorce. And my mom's health was starting to fail. She had this disease that was really starting to take a toll on her life. But she was supportive when we told her and we felt called. And so we packed up and we moved to New England. It was one of the, the biggest steps of faith that we had taken as a family. And as a church, we, we weren't quite able to ever catch the momentum that we needed. We, we saw some, some incredible things happen. God do some work in people's lives um, that, that we just couldn't explain. I mean, it was really amazing some of the things that we got to see God do while we were in, in Rhode Island, but, but we just were never really able to get over some of that pain that the church experienced in those early days. And, and despite our best efforts, despite a whole lot of prayer, we just weren't really going anywhere, and it was confusing to us. We both felt so strongly that the, that the Lord was calling us there and was going to provide, and yet I felt like such a failure because we weren't meeting some of the goals that we needed to, to meet. Now, on top of that, my mom's disease started to take a turn for the worse. Her health issues to start, started to escalate quickly. And I was the only one in our family that could really take care of her. And I lived 16 hours away. So I found myself driving back and forth from Rhode Island to Indiana to look after her, to take care of her, and then, and then try to go back and lead this church that was struggling. And, and, and it just was such a difficult season of my life. I shed a lot of tears. I prayed a lot of angry prayers up along I-90. And one day I got the call that my mom wasn't doing very well, and that we should probably 
get there as soon as we could. And so we packed up and we drove all through the night. And on the morning of July 8th, 2016, I held my mom's hand as she took her last breath and she passed from this life to the next. And if you've been through something like that, you know that feeling. There's just this numbness that settles over you. And that's where I was. I felt, I felt numb. I preached my mom's funeral. I started the process of, of closing her estate. And then, and then I went back to this church that was struggling, that, that, that was barely getting by, that I trusted that God was going to, to, to move and, to, and restore, and it just wasn't. And when I came out of this mental fog that I found myself in, I found that the only emotion that I was feeling was anger. I was angry that my mom died. I was angry that my dad abandoned my mom when she needed him the most, that, that she spent the last three years of her life practically alone. I, I was angry that, that I'd moved my family halfway across the country for this. And I vividly remember at night crying out to God, saying, God, where are you? What are you doing? And I said to him more than once, because what it feels like you're doing, God, is that you led us to New England just so that I could watch my mom die from a distance. It felt cruel. It was disorienting. It wrecked my faith. I wasn't sure if I, what I believed. I wasn't even sure about the goodness of God. I was questioning everything. And that time in my life made me wonder about God's goodness. And we ended up leaving the church moving into my in-law's basement. <laughs> and quite honestly, I thought that I was done with ministry. And didn't want to go back. And the worst part of it all is that what felt like in that moment when I needed God the most, he was completely silent. Have you ever been there before? Maybe you're there right now, tonight. You came limping into church tonight, hoping to meet a God that you, that you once knew or were convinced, or you, you know somebody who, who is convinced that he is real, and you're just like, I don't feel it, I don't know. But you're here tonight hoping to encounter that God. Have you ever experienced the season that the mystics call the dark night of the soul? It's in times like these where it's really easy for us to wonder, God, where are you? What, what are you doing? Walking through times of suffering and pain is what leads a lot of people to, to question their faith or, or maybe to walk away from it altogether. Maybe you have someone that you love, that that's their story. And what makes it even harder is that in those times of life when we're struggling, what makes it even harder is those moments when it just feels like God is silent, like you cry out and there is no one there, like you pray and your words just go up to the ceiling and then they fall right back down to the floor. 
In times of silence, we tend to question everything that we thought that we believed. We, we question, we wonder, God, do you even care? Or we question his power and we wonder, God, if, are you even powerful enough to do something? And if you are, then why aren't you? And as difficult as life can be, sometimes the pain is only magnified by the apparent silence of God. Which is why I believe and, and what I found in my own life that times of silence reveal the strength of our faith. The silence of God reveals what our faith is really made of. If, if we're truly confident in what we hope for and assured of what we do not see, which is the definition of faith that the author of Hebrews gives in chapter 11, verse 1. Silent puts our faith to the test and it has a way of exposing what or who we actually worship. Those things in the moment when we are hurting or when we are angry or when we are lonely or when we are just exhausted, those things and those people that we run to become our functional saviors that we, that we try to look to escape and, and, and for comfort. And so, so it could be that website, that habit, that person Times of silence reveal what or who we worship. They reveal the strength of our faith, what it's really made of. But if we allow them to, times of silence can also strengthen our faith. They can make us draw closer to the Lord. They, 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 they teach us how to walk with a greater sense of trust, even if, again, we walk with a limp. The silence of God reveals the strength of our faith, and then it becomes a training ground for our faith to grow, which is probably why so many of us have experienced a season like that. In fact, could you just be a little vulnerable right now and raise your hand if you'd say that you've experienced that season of silence in your own life? And so if you're in that place right now, look around. There are people... They don't know your story because it's unique to you, but they know what it's like. It's probably why so many people in scripture went through times like that as well. And today we're going to explore um, this account in Abraham's life where he walked faithfully through the silence of God. And, and hopefully we're going to see tonight how we can not just go through them, but we can actually grow through them. And so if you have a Bible or a Bible app that you like to use, I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. We'll also have the words up on the screen. And if you didn't bring a Bible tonight, um, you're not alone because I didn't either. Uh, I, had, I had like three back-to-back -back meetings before having to leave Bloomington, and I got my iPad and my uh, water bottle and my friend, and I left my Bible in my office. And so Dave is uh, being gracious enough to let me use his. Thanks for that, bud. Appreciate it. So Genesis 22, that's going to be our text uh, for, for tonight. In, in a blog post that I, I read earlier this summer, Randy Alcorn says, uh, the call to wait on God is an invitation to trust and hope. It entails believing that one day, even if today is not that day, he will make all things right. And I think that's a great summary of Abraham's faith. In Genesis 12, God tells Abraham to uproot his entire family, to leave everything that he had ever known, and just start walking to a land that, that he'll show him and, and tell him to stop. <laughs> and so that's what he did. 
Abraham, Sarah, they packed up their bags, all their belongings, and they started walking, not knowing where God was leading. The only thing that they knew was that God was going to provide for them, and he was guiding them to this this promised land that he was going to show them, and that he was going to build a nation through them. Later in his old age, God made a promise to Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. The only problem is that Abraham and Sarah did not have any children at the time, and they were well past their childbearing years. But God makes this promise to Abraham and his wife, Sarah, in Genesis 17, 19. He says, then God said, yes, but your wife, Sarah, will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. And then he makes this promise. I will establish my covenant for his descendants after him. And so all of these promises that God makes Abraham about building a nation, about numerous descendants, all of them hinge on his son, Isaac, that God would eventually provide, which had to make what happened next so confusing for him. Genesis 22, verse 1. So sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. And sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you. And this had to leave Abraham with so many questions. Like we know from the text that God is testing the genuineness of Abraham's faith, but Abraham doesn't know that. All that he knows is that God, who promised to build a nation through this son, is now telling him to sacrifice Isaac as a burnt offering. I imagine Abraham wondering, God, this isn't like you. What what are you asking me to do? Why are you asking me to do it? What are you doing? But just like he had always done, Abraham was faithful. He trusted God and he followed. Verse three says, early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. Did you catch that? He, he, he takes his son and, he, and he, he takes the wood for the burnt offering and they start walking. And it says in verse four, on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Three days, three days of silence, three days of unanswered prayers and questions, three days of crying out on the inside for God to spare this son that he loves. And the author doesn't go into any details about what Abraham was feeling during those three days. But I mean, we can put ourselves in his shoes, right? Anger, betrayal, sadness, fear. Abraham had to be feeling all of these things in those days of silence. And meanwhile, God left him in that silence alone. So what do you do when God is silent? What do you do when God is silent? 
Let's look at what Abraham does and see if there's anything that we can take away from it. Verse 5. He said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Did you notice that? He says, we will worship and then we will come back to you. Did, did Abraham just have like a little lapse in, in, in memory of what he was about ready to go and, and do? Why does he say we and not I? We will come back, not I will come back. Well, I will come back could have made the, the servants that were with him wondering, well, what about Isaac? I will come back could have made Isaac wonder, what about Isaac? <laughs> And so he could have said we because he didn't want to go into all this detail about what was about ready to happen. But I think that something else is going on here. In Hebrews 11, the author gives us some insight into Abraham's thought process that, that the narrative doesn't. Hebrews 11, um, verse 17, it says this, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned, reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And this is fascinating to me. Abraham had no concept of the dead coming back to life. In Abraham's life and in his faith, dead things had always stayed dead. And yet he took everything that he knew about God's power and his strength combined with his, his care and his promises. And Abraham reasoned that God must be planning to raise Isaac back to life. That's why he says, we will come back to you. He had reconciled in his heart and his mind that this good and faithful God would be true to his promises. And so there must be more to what is going on here than what I can see right now. But even still, knowing that does not make walking by faith any easier. And then Isaac asked a question that had to pierce the heart of his father at verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. I think in those three days of silence, Abraham never stopped listening and, and wondering what God is up to. And we see in this passage, Abraham leaning into what he knows about God, trusting what he knows to be true about him. Abraham could look back on his life and see all of the ways that God had provided, all of the ways that he had been faithful to his promises, all of the ways he had come through. From when he left his homeland to go to a place that God would show him, to providing a son for him when they were well past their childbearing age. God had always provided for Abraham, and he trusted that he would do it again. Verse 9, when they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. 
Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Again, in those three days of silence, Abraham was listening for the voice of God to speak through the silence. And and he kept walking in faith, waiting for God to speak again. And at just the right time, he did. And so what can we learn about walking in faith through the silence of God from this account of Abraham's life? How can we engage in those those moments of silence in our own life when when God feels absent or distant or far away? How can we not just go through those times, but actually grow through them? I want to share some things that I've learned from this text and from my own times of walking through the silence of God. And, And the first thing is this. Embrace the hardship. Embrace the hardship. And the silence of God can be so frustrating It can be so confusing at times. It can make you question everything that you thought that you believed and that you held on to. And and those moments make us afraid. They they make us scared because it's new and, and, and it's disorienting. But I'm telling you, we need to embrace the hardship of it. Be honest about the questions that we have. Be honest about the doubts that are creeping into our minds. We need to walk into the storm instead of away from it. You know, it's interesting, but IU doesn't actually have a a mascot. Uh, We're the Hoosiers, but what in the world's a Hoosier? (laughs) And how do you dress up as one? I don't know. And it hasn't always been that way. In fact, the history of IU's mascot is is, um, pretty entertaining. It's been everything from an owl uh, to an eagle named Jim Watson, for some reason, um, to legit the toddler son of an athletic trainer um, during 1912 (laughs) season. But from 1965 to 1969, uh, the IU mascot was a bison. This was it, the IU bisons. And and they got rid of it because the students were demanding a live bison. And the faculty was like, "Um, we can't do that. Uh, And then the bison costume that they um, put somebody in was way too hot. And they had to lead him around by a rope because he couldn't see anything. And like, that's not a really good look for us. And so the bison went away. uh, And now we're just the, the Hoosiers. And a member of our church, who's a department chair at IU, um, he started this Bring Back the Bison campaign during COVID. And so he made signs, he bought all kinds of merch with that Bring Back the Bison slogan on it. Uh, I even have a a shirt that I wear to games sometimes. Well, about a month into this campaign that he started, um, he received a cease and desist letter from IU's attorneys. And so... That kind of squashed that movement uh, right as it was starting to pick up steam. But the reason why Paul was was on this push and, and felt so strongly about bringing back the bison, especially during that time, is because of how bison react to storms. Maybe you've heard this. Their, their cousin, the cow, huddles up and stays put or maybe even runs away, but the bison takes the storm head on. When a bison senses that a storm is coming, they don't run away from it. They don't stay put. They turn and they move into the storm. They don't give up. They don't back down. They embrace the hardship. And when God seems silent, you can freeze where you are. You can try to run away, abandon everything that you knew, everything that you believed, But what I've found in my own life 
is that in those times when I've embraced the silence of God and the struggles that come with it, I have actually grown more in my faith during those times than in any other moment as a follower of Jesus. So embrace the hardship. Abraham embraced the hardship. Second, in times of silence, lean into what you do know. Silence can leave you with a lot more questions than answers. And, and, and we, we have tendency to focus on the questions and what we don't know. But, but I'm telling you, lean into what you do know, where the Lord has moved, what he has done in your life, instead of focusing only on the things that you don't know, that you don't understand. Do what Abraham did and look back and remember times when God did move, did act, did speak. Lean into the characteristics of God that you have experienced before and remind yourself who he is and what he is like, not what your emotions are telling you in that moment. In his book, God on Mute, which if you're struggling through a season like this or, or know someone is, this is a fantastic book about the silence of God. Pete Gregg writes, when we are scared and hurting, when life feels chaotic and out of control, it is more important than ever to anchor ourselves in the absolute and eternal truth that we are dearly loved and deeply held by the most powerful being in the universe. And so remember who God is. Remember what he has done. Lean into the truth that he loves you and you are a child of his. Third, when God is silent, listen to what he's already spoken. In a way, God is never silent, even if we feel like he is. He continues to speak to us through his word. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is God-breathed. They are the words of God breathed out for us. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 4, verse 12, that the, that the word of God is living and active. It's, it's useful. It's powerful in our lives. This double-edged sword that's able to get to the heart of who we are and what we are feeling. And it speaks words that we need the most. The word of God is alive and it is active. In it, we hear the voice of God speaking words of comfort and love, direction. We, we hear God speak to our fears and our disappointments and our doubts. God has given us words to pray when we feel like he is distant or absent or far away. God speaks through his word. But oftentimes in times of silence, there's a tendency to withdraw to set it down and step away. You may lose your desire for God and his word. I had sinus surgery uh, a few months ago. If you've ever had it, um, you know it's pretty miserable. Uh, I had a deviated septum fixed and some polyps removed and they cleaned out my sinus cavities. And, and I told my girls uh, a couple of weeks before I was having the surgery, hey, I'm going to have some stuff done on my nose. And my youngest daughter goes, oh, good. Are they going to make it look better? <laughs> True story. I was like, uh, no, this is what God gave me. And, uh, and my wife looked at her and said, you know, I've always thought that you kind of had your daddy's nose. And she whipped her head and she's like, no, I don't. <laughs> 
Well, anyway, a couple of uh, weeks after my, my surgery, I still had not regained my sense of taste. Couldn't taste anything. It didn't matter what it was. I could not taste a, a thing. And if you've ever lost your sense of taste, whether because of surgery or COVID or, or whatever, there comes a point where you just kind of lose your desire for food. It's, it, it, eating becomes something that you have to do. It, it's not something that, that you enjoy doing. But even though I didn't enjoy eating during that time, the truth is, is that the food that I ate still nourished my body. It still gave me what I needed to survive. And I think that the same is true for scripture. In those times when God seems silent, you may lose your desire for God's word, but you still need it for your faith to survive. And it might not be as rich and vibrant as it once was, but it still gives you the nourishment that your soul needs. And so when God seems silent, keep feeding on his word, listening to what he's already spoken. And finally, when God feels silent, keep taking the next right step. Keep doing what you know you're supposed to do. If he sent you in a direction and then went silent, it might mean that he wants you to just keep going in that direction until he tells you to stop. And when we think about Mother Teresa, we think of someone who probably had like direct access to the father. Like she could just, like we pick up a phone and just talk to him and he would talk right back to her. But in her letters to some trusted friends um, that were published after her death, she revealed that for the last 50 years of her life and her ministry, she didn't feel the presence of God. She didn't feel this closeness or, or connection to him. And some people actually used that against her. They called her a, a hypocrite. But instead of focusing on her despair and giving up, Mother Teresa fixed her eyes on the God that felt silent she kept taking the next right step, doing the next right thing. So when God seems silent, don't give up. Don't get discouraged. Keep pressing on. Eventually, God will burst through the silence at just the right time. Living in my in-law's basement for a few months gave me a lot of time to reflect on the previous four years of ministry and life and everything that had happened. And after a month or so of trying to figure out what was next, I asked Tom Ellsworth, who was the lead minister at Sherwood Oaks at, at the time, uh, if he and I could just meet for lunch, and he graciously uh, agreed. And we had a great conversation, and, and at the end of it, um, Tom said, hey, I'm going to be out in just a couple of weeks, and I'm having a really hard time finding someone to, to preach. Would you be willing to step in and preach? I'm like, Tom, did you listen to anything that I said over the last two hours? Like, bro, I'm a mess. <laughs> but he was desperate. And uh, I don't know if you know much about the church planter's life, but it's not real lucrative. And our bank account was running low, and honestly, I could have used the cash. And so I said, yes. <laughs> And the, and the text that week was the story of Samson. It's a story about a good God redeeming a great moment of failure. It's a story of grace. It is exactly what I needed to hear.
God used that text to restore my faith. He spoke through that experience and he said, Sean, I am not done with you yet. And six years later, I am so grateful for a God who did not give up on me, even though I was this close to giving up on him. So God may feel silent right now, but at just the right moment, he is gonna burst through the silence and he is gonna speak the very words that you need to hear, which is what we, again, we see in our text. God broke his silence, saved Abraham's son, and then provided a sacrifice just like Abraham believed he would. Verse 13, Abraham looked up and there in a thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Abraham trusted that God would provide the sacrifice needed to save his son, and he did And so he called that place, the Lord will provide. And little did he know that thousands of years later, in that exact same spot, on that exact same mountain, Jesus, God's one and only son, whom he loved, would later walk up to that same place on that same mountain, faithfully going where the father was leading him. Jesus was familiar with the silence of God. And that night before he walked to the spot where he'd be crucified, Jesus prayed and pleaded with God three different times to take this cup of suffering from him. And three different times, God answered with silence. And you see, Jesus did not just carry our sin to the cross and die the death that we deserved. He experienced everything that we experienced, including the silence of God. He knows the pain and the anguish, and he is our perfect example of walking in faith when God seems silent. And so from the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus went to the cross and allowed himself to be pierced. And God was silent. All of his friends abandoned and betrayed him. And God was silent. On the cross, Jesus cried out to his father and God was silent. He he pleaded, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God was silent. After his death, they took his body down and they placed it in a tomb and God was silent. The disciples mourned and all hope seemed lost and God was silent. But after three days of silence, God spoke and the tomb and the stone was rolled away and Jesus was resurrected. God spoke loudly to us through the power of the resurrection. He provided a way for us to be forgiven and set free from our guilt and our sin and our shame. He provided the substitute sacrifice that we needed on the mountain called the Lord will provide. He provided Jesus. He provided a way for us to find new life and a fresh start through him. I had the opportunity to go to Israel just a few months ago. 
And if you go to this place where it's believed that Jesus was crucified, you'll look up in that church and you'll see two murals overlooking it. And one is Jesus on the cross and people mourning. And the other is Abraham looking through his son, seeing the ram, seeing Jesus behind it. Jesus is the substitute sacrifice that we need. The silence of God can oftentimes feel deafening, but even in the midst of it, we can walk in faithfulness and we can trust that at just the right time, God will break through the silence and speak the words we need to hear. Thanks for letting me share with you all tonight. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Lord, it can often be confusing and bewildering when we go through times of pain and struggle, when we go through times of, of darkness, and, and we look around and we wonder where you are and what you're doing. We wonder why you haven't come and rescued us from this now yet. Lord, would you please give us the faith to continue to walk with you, to embrace that hardship, to, to lean into what we know to be true about you, to keep listening to your word and what you want to speak to us, and to just keep doing the next right thing. Father, put people in our path and surround us with, with your love and can be physical extensions of you. And Lord, if there's anyone here tonight that is struggling, God, would you just give them the courage to open up and share that with someone? And would you uh, let them take maybe some first steps of, of hope tonight? Give them the courage and the boldness to continue to walk in faith, seeking you. Trusting that at just the right time, you will speak what we need to hear. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name.